morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. What a beautiful day, right? Great day to be here. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, one of the first people I had a conversation with this morning said, man, it's a beautiful day outside. You need to keep it short today. <laughs> so here's the deal I'm going to make with you. Uh, we'll be done before the sun goes down. You, you, you will get to enjoy some of this beautiful day uh, today. I thought that was great. I told her, I said, well, if, if we could get the windows open, I'd, I'd open the windows today. She said, that might not be a good idea. People might fall asleep then. So uh, you might fall asleep anyway. But anyway, do you have your Bibles this morning? Good. Ephesians chapter 4 is where you need to go. Ephesians chapter 4. Last week, we moved into the application portion of this great letter. Uh, we've been studying it for quite some time now. Uh, Paul is shifting gears in chapter 4. Uh, talking to the people about a call to action. He has laid a very solid foundation in chapters 1 to 3 of good theology, good doctrine, lots of indicative statements about this is what has happened to you. This is what Christ has done for you. This is the reality of who you are in Christ. And then in chapter 4 he shifts gears and he says, now here's what you need to do about it. Here is the appropriate, the fitting, um, the, the balanced response to this great news that he shared in chapters 1 to 3. So he said in very general way in verse 1, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And I told you that that's a general principle. It's a good application. It's a good kind of filter to sift everything we do through when you face some kind of decision or some kind of action or maybe even a temptation. You should think about, hey, is this thing, is this action that I'm about to be a part of, is this fitting with the calling I've received? Does this jive with the grace I've been given? To say that I have been raised from the dead by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet to walk in the ways of the world just doesn't seem to make any sense. So if you're constantly asking yourself, is, is this thing in balance? Is this thing fitting? Is this thing appropriate to the grace that I've been giving? Uh, been given, that will be a good guide for you in these actions. I told you that verse 1 is going to hang kind of as a banner over the next several weeks, maybe even months of our study in Ephesians, that this general principle of walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called is going to be the banner that hangs over everything we're going to do in here and in Sunday school. And what Paul is going to do under that is make some very specific applications. Uh, last week he talked about life in the church and unity in particular in the church. We'll see that again this week. Next week we're going to look at diversity in the church. How do we live, how do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received when it comes to diversity in the church? We're going to talk about our relationship with our spouse. We're going to talk about our relationship with our children. We're going to talk about our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, about our relationship with our boss and our employees. All of these relationships and all of these circumstances of life Paul is going to apply that general principle of walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so we don't want to move past that, but we do want to apply that in more specific detail. Last week he talked about life in the church when it comes to unity. Um, we'll continue to talk about that today. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 1 and, and read to you all of this section. It says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'm going to stop right there and remind you that we talked about that, that it's important that we remember that we don't create unity. We don't create it. We don't originate it. It was given to us 
by God through the work of Christ on the cross. He created the unity, but we are given the responsibility to maintain it, to preserve it. One commentator said this. He said the verb there that says diligently preserve is a present participle, which means that we must constantly be endeavoring to maintain this unity. In fact, when we think, listen to this, when we think the situation is best, Satan will move in and wreck it. Is that true? When we think the situation is best, Satan will move in and wreck it. The spiritual unity of a home, a Sunday school class, or a church is the responsibility of each person involved, and the job never ends. That's, a, that's, that's big, right? It's the responsibility of each person involved, and the job never ends. When we stop working diligently to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, it will break apart. Satan will move in and tear us apart. When we relax, Satan moves in and causes all kind of trouble. Read on, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for these people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Thank you for this body, this church. It's yours. It's your church. You are the head of it. You're the savior of it. You're the leader of it. And I thank you for it. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. And I pray that today you will teach us about what draws us together. I pray today that you will help us to emphasize, highlight, magnify even the things that we have in common. And God, I pray that you will guard us against magnifying the things that would divide us. I pray that you will guard our hearts against emphasizing the things that would divide us. And God, I pray that you draw our hearts to see one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God who is Father of all, in all, above all, through all. God, I pray that you'll point our attention and our affection in the proper direction today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So this week, uh, in the text, we're going to focus on what we have in common. And, and before we get into that, I want us to think a little bit about what we, what we don't have in common. I want you to look around at the people in this room, right? Look around at the people next to you. I mean it. <laughs> I want you to do that. What are the things that would divide us? What are some of the things that could divide us if we emphasize them too much? Age, excellent. That's a, that's a great one. We think differently. Different generations think differently. We have different worldviews even perhaps. We, we reason differently. We value different things. So age can be something that divides us oftentimes. What else might divide us? Hair. <laughs> That's great. Those of us who are bald despise you who have hair. This Winkleman despises that Winkleman <laughs> because of his hair. That's funny. That doesn't really divide us, does it? No. <laughs> Good. Some comic relief today. It's not all going to be funny today. What else might divide us? What's that? Political views, yeah, maybe may have some folks that lean a little bit left and some folks that lean a little bit right, some folks that don't want to be involved at all. Yeah, politics could divide us. Gender divides us, exactly right. There are real differences between men and women, right? 
And, and we, we don't, we don't want to act like there aren't. That's one of the applications we're going to make at the end of the day is we don't want to bury our head in the sand over the reality of some of these differences, right? We don't, we don't want to act like there aren't real differences among us, um, but we, wanna, uh, we want to uh, handle those differences in the right way, okay? Good. Any other differences you can think of? We could probably go on all day, right? We have different preferences. We have different styles. We have different uh, value systems. We, we, we have different levels of education. We have different levels of income. There are all kinds of things that could divide us in this room, right? But there are some things that unite us in this room, amen? And that's what we want to focus on. We could spend all day talking about the things that divide us, but that would be a waste of time, would it not? We'd all be grumbling against each other. We'd all be hating each other. We want to talk about the things that unite us today, and that's exactly what Paul does. You're going to notice in the text today that it's indicative in its form. It is an indicative statement. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one Lord. He is not really calling us to action in the text that we're looking at today. But what I want you to see is this text is very closely linked to the text last week where he says, be one, right? He says, live, maintain, diligently work to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says, and there's real unity there. There's real oneness there if we will emphasize and focus on those things. And so that's what we're going to try to do today. I want you to notice the use of the word one in this text. Just zooming out uh, from high altitude, look at the use of the word one in this text. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. That word one is clearly highly significant. It is used seven times, which is no coincidence. Um, seven, a number of completion, a number of perfection in the Bible. That word is used one time. I don't want to go too far off the deep end in talking about that. But I do want you to see that that word one does two things in this text. Number one, it separates Christianity from other world religions. We are not going to talk about Christianity as one of several legitimate options for knowing God. We are going to talk about Christianity as the only way to know God, right? To, the only way to know the only God who created all and sustains all, right? We are not on just several parallel tracks headed to heaven with our Muslim friends and our Hindu friends and, and, and all of the other friends. We're not on parallel tracks headed to the same place, are we? No, we are not. There is one God and there is one way and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen to that? Okay, good. So that word one separates Christianity, distinguishes Christianity from all the religions of the world. And number two, that word one draws us together. It is what we have in common in this room. You don't have one Lord and I have a different Lord, right? No, we have one Lord. You didn't participate in one baptism and I participated in a different baptism, did you? No, there is one baptism and it draws us together and unifies us and, and causes us to have this common bond. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's look at all of these ones. Seven ones. The first one is this. One body. Paul says there is one body. That word body is the classic image of the church in the New Testament. And body implies complexity, does it not? He doesn't say you are one part of a body. He says, no, there is, there is one body. We are all together in one body. Uh, we are not one giant arm. Uh, we are not one giant eyeball. We are one body. There is one body. And when we talk about this, it's a little bit difficult uh, throughout this whole text to talk about it on, on two different levels. One is we want to think about the global church the universal church, that we are one body, even with our brothers and sisters across town, right? As our, as our Christian brothers and sisters gather in different rooms in Harrisburg, we're one body with them, are we not? 
Yeah, and we're, we're one body with our friends in the Dominican Republic, right? As they gather this morning and, and worship together, we're one body with them. And we're one body with brothers and sisters all over the planet. We're together with them, right? One body. That's, that's good news. We will make most of our application, though, today for the local church, that we are one body in this room as a family. We are one body, and you're one kind of part, and you're one kind of part, and I'm one kind of part, and together we work as a body. We function as a body because of the diversity of the gifts, because of the diversity of the calling. We work together, and who is the head of this body? Christ is the head of this body, right? He's the one in control of it all, and we work for him, and we serve him. So he says, there is one body, and I want us to be very careful in this room, as First Baptist Church, I want us to be very careful not to forget that we are one body. I want us to be very careful not to divide ourselves into a bunch of smaller bodies within this body. And I want you to know that we tend toward that, that, that that's natural for us is to, within this one body, create multiple little bodies that really function alone and stand alone and are separated from each other. We can tend to do that. Do you agree? And what I also want you to know is Satan loves that. Satan encourages that. Satan enables that and produces an environment where that can happen, all right? He loves it when he looks, Satan loves it when he looks at a church and doesn't see one body, but he sees a lot of different competing bodies under one roof who don't get along at all and have made a camp here and a camp there and a camp over there and fight against Jesus, against each other. Satan loves it and God hates it. And I want you to be very careful. I want us to be very careful not to create several bodies in the midst of this one body, okay? There is one body. Number two, he says there is one spirit. I want you to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and see a place where Paul links the one body and the one spirit in a different text. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 13. This is a, a classic text where Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, talking about the church as a body working together. Glorious text. We looked at it in years ago in here. Chapter 12, verse 12 says this. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Right? That's just what he said in Ephesians, is it not? There is one body. And then look at verse 13. He says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Do you catch what's going on there? He says that that one spirit is the thing that unites us. It's the thing that brings us together. He says, whether you were a Jew or a Greek, you got the same spirit, right? You were made to drink of the same spirit. You got the gifts from the same spirit. And that's what we want to understand in this room. Whether you're male or female, you were given the same spirit at conversion, right? Whether you're rich or poor, you were given the same spirit at conversion. Whether you grew up here in Harrisburg or someplace else, you were given the same spirit. There's one spirit, not a bunch of different spirits for different kind of people. There is one spirit. And if we will recognize that as fact, it will draw us together, right? We're not all that different, are we? When it boils down, when you boil it all down, we are essentially all the same. And there is one spirit, and it is not a human spirit. It is not a spirit of, of pride or a spirit of discipline. It is the Holy Spirit that he's talking about here, right? One Holy Spirit, one Holy Spirit. He says, there's one body, there is one spirit. Then look what he says next. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, there is one hope. This 
phrase that he uses here is both backward-looking when he mentions the calling, and it is also forward-looking. It seems that in this text, the emphasis is on the forward look, though, right? We may have come from a lot of different places, and we may have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a lot of different ways. How many of you were saved in Vacation Bible School? Right? How many of you were saved as a child? How many of you were saved as an adult? How many of you were saved at the absolute lowest part of your life? All kinds of different ways we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There are all kinds of different stories. We came from a lot of places. We came to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a lot of places. But let me tell you this. We are all headed to the same place if we are in Christ, right? This is a glorious, wonderful truth that we like to celebrate around this place a lot, right? We read Revelation and we see that there are men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered around the throne, right? Singing with one voice, one song, worthy is the Lamb, right? We who are in Christ are headed to the same place. We may have come from a lot of different places. And when we look back, we may find all kinds of things that could divide us. And when we talk about how we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we may find all kinds of things that could divide us. But when we look ahead to where we are going now, that we are in Christ together, we're headed to the same place. Amen? Everyone who is in Christ headed to the same place. Let me tell you this, by the way, too. Everyone who's not in Christ headed to the same place. Together, headed to the same place. Not to heaven, but to hell. Christ is the only way, the only way to heaven. He says, there is one hope. There is one hope. There is one body, there is one spirit, there is one hope. Then he says, there is one Lord. And I love that. There is one Lord. Lord, when I talk to children about that word, I substitute the word boss. Right? How many of you in Sunday school today looked at that text from Luke chapter 6 that says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Did you look at that? Did you at least read it? It's a pretty powerful text, right? Why do you call me boss, boss, but don't do what I say? Does that work at your place of employment? That, that you say to the boss, oh yeah, you're the boss, you're the boss, but I'm not going to do what you say. Now what happens if you do that? You get to find a new boss, right? Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you call me Sovereign One? Why do you call me Ruler, Ruler, and do not do what I say? And what I want you to see is there's one boss around this place, right? One boss, one Lord, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Verse 12. This is in the midst of fantastic text. We'll read a lot of it just to, just to get to verse 12. Start in, start in verse 9, as a matter of fact. Romans 10, verse 9. Listen to this good news. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Ah, it's so good, right? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So a couple things I want, I want you to see there. Number one, I want you to know that that's true. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen to that? Notice also that he is Lord of all who call on him. Whether they're Jews or Greeks, he's Lord of all who call on them. Whether they're white or black. He's Lord of all who call on him, right? Whether they're rich or poor, he is Lord of all who call on him. There is one Lord, right? 
One body, one spirit, one hope. There is one Lord. There are not multiple lords. Look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Speaking of one Lord. One Lord who is Savior. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. One Lord. One Savior, right? No other name. No other name. No other Savior, no other Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. Then he says, one faith. He says there is one faith. And that can be taken two different ways. One is subjective and the other is objective. I will argue that it is both, that Paul intends both of those things. Subjectively, we would understand this as our experience of faith. That there is one common experience of faith. Sure, we may have heard the gospel from different people. Sure, we may have heard, we may have come to know Christ in different places. But the essence is, everyone who is in Christ has personal faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, right? There, there aren't people who are in Christ that are brought in a different way other than personal faith in the Lord Jesus. Only by personal faith in the Lord Jesus are we brought into Christ, right? You with me on that? So in, an, in a way, and you'll talk about this in Adult Small Group Bible Study next week, in a way, all of our stories are exactly the same. When you boil them down to their essence, all of our stories are exactly the same, and we have real personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are in Christ because of that, right? Okay, so subjectively, he may be referring to our experience of faith. Objectively, he is referring to the actual content of our faith, or what we would refer to as the faith. The faith is outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, right? He's getting to the essence of the gospel. He says, here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. That is the essence of the content of our faith. That is the essence of the faith that is the essence of the gospel, and there is only one gospel, right? There is only one faith. There are not lots of different understandings of Christ. Paul makes this clear in Galatians when he says, listen, even if I preached a different gospel to you, don't believe it. He goes even further and he says, even if an angel from heaven, this should sound really familiar to some of our friends, even if an angel from heaven were to come down and preach a different gospel to you, don't believe it. Don't follow him. He says there is one gospel once for all delivered to the saints, right? That Jesus is Lord, that he is the only Savior, that he died as our substitutionary sacrifice, that he alone can forgive our sins, and that we are called to repent and believe, right? One faith. Not a bunch of different faiths. One faith. In this room and in the church, there is one faith. He goes on. And he says, not only is there one faith, there is one baptism. Whew. Now it gets difficult, especially when we start thinking about how that applies to the global church. Now we understand here at First Baptist Church that we believe in believer's baptism by immersion. We believe that's the biblical pattern, right? People come to faith in Jesus Christ, and in response to that faith, they go down into the water, all, all the way into the water, right? 
and come back up out of the water. I'll tell you a funny story about baptism. Every preacher has a good story about baptism, right? I had a big guy in Mississippi, big, strong guy in Mississippi, wanted to be baptized. He's a brand-new believer. And uh, I said, okay, we'll, we'll do this. And because he was a big guy, I said, listen, I don't think, I'm, I don't think you're going to be able to stand up to do this. I think you're going to have to get down on your knees uh, so that I can, I can help you into the water and basically you can pick yourself back up because if, if it was up to me, we'd both be in the water, right? Big guy. So we go down into the water, and, and he's like shaking, like really shaking. And I'm thinking, man, is this a spiritual thing that's going on here? This could be really cool. And uh, so we talk about why you're in this water and all those kind of things. And, uh, and he gives his testimony. And uh, I say, all right, in the name of the Father and Son and Spirit, it's my privilege to baptize you, my brother. And he gets down on his knees, and I start to push him back into the water, and he's fighting against me. Turns out the guy is terrified of water. Terrified specifically of getting his head wet in the water. And so I'm in this moment where I'm trying to kind of push him into the water and he's resisting. And I'm thinking, do, do I just lean on him and, and dunk him? And, and you know what? Here, here's, here's what happened. I didn't fight him. And the water came up to about here. And he came shooting back up out of the water. So that guy has not been baptized by immer partial immersion. He's not been baptized by immersion, but I think he's been baptized. Because baptism, in its essence, and we would agree in this room on the mode of baptism, that we believe immersion is the way to do it. But baptism, in its essence, is outward identification with Christ and his people. So, I don't want you to walk away from this talk about one baptism saying that our Methodist friends who sprinkle instead of dunk that they're not going to go to heaven because they haven't participated in real baptism, okay? I don't want to talk so much today about the application of this one baptism for the global church. I would rather talk to you today about the application of this one baptism for this local church. Because everyone who's a member of this local church has been baptized as a believer by immersion, right? And that's one of the things that should happen when you witness baptism here in this place. When we baptize a new believer, one of the things that should happen in your heart is you should remember that day for you. You should remember that there was a day when you were standing up there. You should remember there was a day when some preacher put his hand over your face and pushed you down into the water, right? You should remember that, that you have that in common now with them. And it's a unifying thing, is it not? That's why we don't do baptism in secret. It's one of the reasons why we don't do it in secret. We want everyone to see it. We want especially the church to see it so we can say, yeah, I've been there. This is a great thing. We're brothers. We're, we're, we're together now. We have been through the same baptism together. There is one baptism, Paul says, and so we should celebrate uh, that baptism. Next, lastly, he says, not only is there one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, he says there is one God. And this is one of the most basic theological statements you can find anywhere in Scripture. And it is highly significant. It is one theological statement that the Jewish people in the Old Testament definitely celebrate. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one, right? We are not worshiping a multitude of gods. Even when we talk about Father, Son, and Spirit, we are not talking about three gods. We are talking about one God. There is one God. And all of these other gods are not gods at all. Paul will refer to them sometimes as so-called gods, and I like that. I think that's appropriate, because make no mistake about it, there is one God, right? Now, there are other spiritual entities and idols and things like that that people worship as God, but they are not gods. There is only one God. Celebrate this with me. Give me, give me some feedback here. There is one God. 
One God. And look what he says next about that one God. He says there is one God and Father, right? Not just is he God, but he is Father. This is a balance that Paul is always striking. He relates to us. He loves us. He cares for us. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That is, this one God is the supreme God, right? The only one, and he is far above any other so-called gods. He is far above everything, and he is worthy of honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. There is one God, one God, and we worship him. So look, look at all this stuff that brings us together. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one hope. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism, and there is one God. By way of application, we need first to not be unaware of the things that do divide us. That's a lot of negatives there, right? We don't need to act like there aren't real divisions among us, that there aren't real differences among us. I'm not, I'm not asking us to work toward a unity where we just ignore the things that separate us, where we just ignore age. We act like age is not an issue, where we just ignore gender and we act like gender is not an issue at all, where we just ignore preference and act like preference is not an issue at all. We need to acknowledge that those things are real, right? That's the world that we live in and we need to acknowledge it. We don't, we don't need to bury our heads in the sand we must be aware of our weak areas. We must also be aware that those are areas where Satan will attack. We must not live in denial that there are things that would divide us in this room. But application number two is we must be more aware of the things that unite us. With me on this? So I'm not saying let's just ignore the things that divide us. I'm just saying let's lift the things that unite us up so high that those things that would divide us seem very small in comparison, okay? Because there's a big difference between one Lord and the color of the carpet. There's a big difference between one faith and my preference for music. There's a big difference between one body and my political agenda. There's a big difference between those things. And yet we often live life in the church as if those things are all the same. Like those things are on the same level. Well, we, yeah, we, we, have, we have one faith and one Lord and one baptism. But there's this whole issue of music and worship style and preference. And it's a big deal too. You really want to say that's as big of a deal as this thing that grinds us together. I don't think you do. I don't think you do. But I think Satan wants us to think that. I think he wants in our hearts to say, your preference is just as important as that. Your political views are just as important as that. Your age group and your clique or your whatever is just as important as these things that unite us. I'm telling you, we must not be unaware of the things that divide us, but we must be infinitely more aware of the things that unite us. We must put life in its right perspective. How many of the things that do divide us are eternally significant. I think if they're eternally significant, they should divide us. If somebody comes in this room and says, no, there's multiple lords, there's multiple gods, there's multiple bodies, multiple baptisms, that would divide us. We're, we're, we're not, we're not going to live as one body with folks who would deny that Jesus is the only Lord. But we can get, get along with some of this other stuff, Right? Some of these other things that would divide us. How many of the things that divide us are eternally significant? I would say very few, arguably none. One preacher asked this question. He said, you know, he 
made the statement. He said, what we share is way bigger than what divides us. Man, I want to get that on a t-shirt too, right? What we share is way bigger than what divides us. We got to remember that. We've got to remember that when it comes to unity. What we share is way bigger than what divides us. Now, let me say this also. Unity must be preserved on this deep foundational level because that's the level on which it was created. God didn't build his church on a generation. God, God didn't build his church on a worship style. God didn't build his church in a location. God didn't build his church uh, on a group of um, people that make the same amount of money or have the same amount of education. Is that, is that what God built his church on? No, God built his church on the truth of the gospel. And if we're going to maintain unity, if we're going to preserve unity, we have to fight to preserve unity on that level. We get ourselves in trouble. I hope you're tracking with me on this. We get ourselves in trouble when we try to maintain unity on this other level. When we try to build unity on common preference, you know what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen if we try to build unity on common preference? Let's just use worship because that's what we're all thinking about, right? Let's just use music because that's what we're all thinking about. What if we tried to build the church on a common preference of music? What would we have? We would have 9,000 churches in Harrisburg. Because you're the only one that likes the kind of music you like. Right? When you're in charge of the radio, you pick what you like. We cannot build our unity. We cannot preserve and maintain our unity on issues like that. And we will get ourselves in trouble when we try. We must preserve and fight to maintain unity on these substantial eternal issues that Paul is talking about here. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one God, right? Don't, don't try to do it up here. Satan loves that because that's where we are divided. But if we will drive deeper and build and maintain unity on these, on these eternal essential truths, real unity will happen. So, Number one, we must not be unaware of the things that divide us. Number two, however, we must be more aware of the things that unite us. And number three, practical unity, real unity, is the only logical outcome of these theological truths. If there is one Lord and one spirit and one baptism and one body, then how can we be anything but unified? If all that is true, if there are one, 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 how could we be anything but united? What I want you to see in this is that when we are divided, it, it brings suspicion on our claim that there is one Lord. It brings suspicion on our claim that there is one body, that there is one spirit. When we cannot get along, it doesn't make any sense. The only practical outcome of the truths that Paul is sharing in these verses is real unity. Application number four. Listen clearly, listen carefully to this. The first step toward unity is to be in Christ. The first step toward unity is to be in Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He is writing this to the church, folks who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to present to you propose to you that maybe
maybe part of the reason why we struggle so much to maintain and preserve unity of the spirit and the bond of peace at the church is there are many people who aren't in Christ. That, that we are trying to unite folks who really have nothing in common. That it, it is impossible to unite light with darkness and Christ with Belial and righteousness with lawlessness. It's absolutely impossible. And that may be one of the problems why the church struggles so much is we are trying to bring together in unity people who are not all in Christ Jesus. And this may be the most important thing, the most important part of our application today is, are you in Christ? That is the very first step toward unity, is that you would be in Christ Jesus, that you would have come to the end of yourself recognizing that you need him as Savior and Lord, that you would profess your faith in him and repent of your sins, that you would trust in him as Savior and Lord of your life, and that you would follow him. That's the first step toward unity. And maybe part of the problem we, part of the reason why we have problems getting along is there are people who don't know Jesus as Savior. Don't know Jesus as Lord, aren't following him. There's no way we're going to have unity if we're not in Christ. So examine yourself. Ask yourself that question. Paul encourages that in 2 Corinthians. He says, examine yourself, test yourself daily to see if you're in the faith. Are you in the faith? If you're not, run to Jesus, trust in him. If you are, then let's make that the priority. Let's make that the emphasis. Let's make that the focus. Let's put these other things in their proper perspective as minor details. And let's emphasize one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one God, Father, over all, in all, through all. And let's be drawn together in that. Let's stand together and pray. God, I pray that you help us as a church. I pray that you help First Baptist Church to be aware of the things that divide us. Help us to understand generational differences. Help us to understand preferential differences. Help us to understand political differences and financial differences. Help us to understand all of those differences that would divide us. But God, I pray that you will help us to be infinitely more aware of the things that do unite us, that we will not be divided over these lesser things, that, but that we will be united over these most important things, these eternally significant truths, that there is one body and one spirit, just as we were called into one hope of our calling and one Lord and one baptism, one faith and one God. I pray that that will be our emphasis, that we will live life with proper perspective that we will recognize by your grace that you will teach us that what we share, what we share together as believers is way bigger than what divides us. And God, I pray that you teach your church that the only logical, practical outcome of these theological truths is unity. And that's the only thing that makes sense in response to your truth. And God, I recognize this room today there are people who are apart from Christ people who know nothing of this spiritual unity because they don't know you as Savior and Lord of their lives God I pray today you'll invade them that you will teach them about their sin I pray today that you will teach
teach them about your justice and your wrath and your judgment against their sin. I pray that you'll bring conviction in a way that only you can. And I pray that as they are broken, desperate, and needy, that you will turn their eyes to see Christ dying for them, taking their place, bearing their guilt, and suffering their punishment. God, I pray that you will turn their eyes to see Christ not only taking their sin, but taking it away and beating it and winning a victory over it, that they will see Christ risen from the grave, victorious over their sin and death and hell. And God, I pray that their response to all of this revelation that you would bring to them would be to repent of their sins, to turn away from old life and turn towards you in righteousness and to trust, to depend completely on you for forgiveness for salvation, for cleansing, for hope, that they would believe that Jesus is the one Lord, that Jesus is the one Savior, that this is the one faith that can save. God, I pray that you will work in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls to such an extent that they cannot refuse, that they cannot resist, that they will be drawn to you with such power, such glory, and such grace that they will run to you, believe trust, repent, all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.